Welcome to All Business No Boundaries, a collection of supply chain stories by DHL Supply Chain, the North American leader in contract logistics. I'm your host, Will Haywood. This is a place for in-depth discussions on the supply chain challenges keeping you up at night. We're breaking beyond the boundaries that are limiting your supply chain. Let's dive in. Today's episode is Making the Summit, how REI consistently delivers in an environment of rapidly changing consumer behavior. My guests are Bill Best, who's Vice President of Supply Chain and Logistics for REI, and Justin Ha, Senior Director of Solution Design at DHL Supply Chain. Okay, so before we get into the discussion today, I thought it'd be helpful if you could both introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about who you are, your role, your company. Bill, why don't you go first? Great. Thanks, Will. My name is Bill Best. Uh, I lead supply chain at REI. I'm Vice President of Supply Chain and Logistics. The scope in my purview includes, of course, the logistics, international inbound, the domestic transport to stores, our omni-channel or digital delivery services, uh, as well as supply chain strategy, supply chain technology services, sort of an IT, somewhat IT function within our organization, and then uh, distribution operations. Okay, great. And Justin? Yes, hello. My name is Justin Ha. I'm a senior director with the solutions design team at DHL Supply Chain. I've been with the company for a little over 12 years, and in my current role, I lead a team of engineers and logistics professionals that design warehousing and distribution solutions for our customers. And within that role, I'm also the lead solutions representative for our retail and e-commerce sector acting as an SME in that vertical and providing more focused support. Great. Thank you both for that. Um, and Bill, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, you know, the time of year is is fourth quarter early. Um, we're looking at another peak season. Um, you know, we you went through one of these during a pandemic last year. And, you know, I'm wondering if um, what, if anything, changed um, in the pandemic and maybe changing now that we're coming out of it. Um, as we look at 2021 for peak season? Sure, I think there's a couple of things uh, that are the same, they just scaled. <laughs> so uh, digital continues to lead the day um, as it relates to um, getting product to our customers. And so scaling to serve the digital demand uh, is critical. Um, beyond uh, the digital, retail stores are open um, and, you know, we certainly all saw hiatus of retail store, but then that was followed by uh, um, some apprehension about getting back into crowded retail environments. Uh, and so finding the balance of making sure we're serving well the customers that did choose to go into the store and the customers that um, uh, chose to shop online. The nuance this year really is about inventory, and there's no mystery in this. We all understand the challenges of the inbound supply chain and building up inventory. Um, and when we went into COVID, many retracted from their inventory purchases in anticipation that this could be a long protracted um, uh, condition in business and wanted to be careful about cash. Um, and then um, probably equally, we all went back to market saying, oh, this isn't as uh, disruptive as we otherwise thought. Fire the factories back up and produce more than you did before and keep up with demand. And that cascaded all the way back into tier two suppliers and otherwise that uh, we're seeing the impacts of that still going. 
Where we've been fortunate is that we've been able to build our inventory uh, to levels that are a little bit better than where we were at in 2019 uh, in, uh, in many categories. But there are certainly other categories where it's still really hard. And the best example that I share with people is go look at a car lot. How many cars are on the lot? It's visceral. It's very, very clear. That goes all the way back to tier two components and suppliers, et cetera. Uh, and it's not much different on other consumer goods. Got it. So, Justin, um, I know as a as a DHL employee that I'm getting a lot of questions about the inventory questions in the global supply chain um, from a solution standpoint at DHL. You know, what's a, what's your general response when talking to customers or partners in industry around, you know, how do we unclog um, what is right now a very clogged global supply chain? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, tough uh, question to answer than uh, it just seems. Um, it just really varies by, uh, like Bill sort of mentioned, it could vary by industry as well. Uh, for someone that can see across uh, multiple sectors, you know, generally, I think inventory turns have been going down. Uh, I think it's because, you know, like the disruptions we had is interrupting the ability to forecast accurately. So sometimes you fall behind and as you try to quickly catch up, then you overshoot. Uh, and then as that sort of accumulate, I think it's having a lot of stress on the ports, as we know, uh, that we hear about on a daily basis. A lot of the inventory getting caught up in transit. So all that said, I think, um, you know, for, for certain industries like fashion, it's, it's quite uh, difficult, especially fast fashion where they go through styles pretty quickly. Uh, so the skew life cycle is, um, you know, shorter than, uh, you know, general merchandise. So I think those are probably the most difficult ones. But uh, for something like, you know, general goods and, and consumer, you know, maybe not as uh, impacted because, you know, in their network, they've got inventory to sort of um, meet the demand uh, as of today, uh, while they're still waiting for uh, some of their goods to make it through the transit and into the warehouse. Thank you. Um, another hot topic now is labor shortages in the market. Um, this is everybody during peak season is looking for um, uh, part-time labor. REI is probably no different, Bill. Um, what kind of strategies do you guys have in place to make sure you've got the right labor force to deliver on the season? Yeah, so um, a... Um... You know, we're, we're all of us in the, in the um, retail industry are, are kind of chasing some of the same types of strategies, right? So I'd say first off, um, our strategy is be market aware, and by market aware, that's local market where I'm hiring, not trying to approach it in a macro way, um, because the labor needs and expectations are different, and they're not necessarily intuitive by market. Um, some of the rural markets are every bit in as high a demand as the more urban uh, markets, um, you know, and um, would come to a counterintuitive uh, outcome relative to uh, hiring practice and, and uh, equitable pay. So living wage has been an interesting conversation for a long time, uh, but that's been stood on its head a bit. Um, and, you know, um, beyond that, we're pulling some of the same levers. You know, we've staffed up. Um, we uh, actually have reorganized our labor force to uh, index more toward our heavy days are. So retail's not a Monday through Friday business. 
it's really more of a Thursday through Monday business. Um, so we've bolstered our weekend staffing. Uh, we've taken uh, and grown our off shifts. We've incorporated shift differentials. Uh, others have done some of those same things. Um, but aligning the labor and staffing up to when the work's happening and making sure that we're market aware in how we compensate. Justin, with um, DHL running, you know, hundreds of facilities across the U.S. and Canada, how do you um, do what Bill was suggesting around being, you know, market aware, but also, you know, fair across your whole labor force? Um, what's, what's that balance and how do you strike it? Yeah, it's a tough one, especially this year, I think. Um, you know, I think I heard a fact that the past two months in the U.S., about three to four million people have exited the workforce uh, each month, which is, uh, I heard is, uh, you know, record-setting numbers. Um, so it's, you know, pretty alarming for every industry, really, to be finding staff that they need to hire. Um, you know, I think, call it a Band-Aid solution, uh, and we're no... Um, immune to that. I think for the peak, uh, in addition to what Bill talked about, we have sites where we have uh, surge premiums for those peak periods where we would pay additional, uh, you know, a couple of dollars per hour for that period of time. We're also bringing people on early, fully expecting that um, we may not have work for them, but uh, also anticipating the turnovers that happen. We're just overstaffing in uh, anticipation of the work coming as well. So you know, a lot of ways we are doing everything we can uh, so that we can service our customers. Um, but yeah, to how to balance with the rest of the uh, the market, um, you know, I think generally uh, our HR team is amazing at knowing what the market rates are and staying competitive. Uh, at the same time, again, just, you know, making that investment when we need to for those peak periods, because for some companies, that's really the period that makes or breaks their year. So it's quite critical. Bill, did you have another comment on that? I was just going to make one more comment that, uh, you know, we're also investing in automation because part of the problem statement here is the supply doesn't match up to the demand uh, with the pivot to digital. So many folks are adding distribution operations that just pushes into labor. So some of that has been mitigated by how we're choosing to automate some of our processes. So what, what processes in particular have you found to be best uh, targets for automation? Where have you made the most headway? It depends on how, you know, how much investment you want to make. And uh, some of those investments are a little bit longer lead time. But order assembly is uh, a very latent process and costs everyone more money than, uh, than bulk picking and or case level picking. So in our digital business, uh, our approach to order assembly um, we use pocket sortation uh, as an approach to that, and everybody has a little bit different profile, but um, I can do the same amount of volume with about a third to 25% of the amount of labor demand uh, from a throughput, and it's very resilient. So, um, you know, there's one example. Yeah, and for, for our listeners who may not know about pocket sortation, can you just quickly describe what that what that looks like? Yeah, so uh, for, for those of us that are a little bit older, remember the days of dry cleaning. <laughs> uh, and imagine you're picking up your dry clean and you're pressing the button and it's bringing the dry cleaning to you. Uh, pocket sortation is sort of like that. The pockets are all RFID tagged. 
It can take multiple multiple line items from an order. It will sort all of your shirts, put them together and deliver them to you at the front of store so that there's not an order assembly um, thought process that needs to happen. It's I've got three pockets, I've got three items. I put three things into the box, the bag uh, or otherwise, and I send it on its way. And you can do in seconds what would otherwise take a minute. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Justin, um, what um, kinds of automations have you seen most applied um, over 2021 looking towards peak? I think uh, mobile robotics definitely have um, made a surge. Uh, just things like, you know, Locust Robotics and Six River Systems, um, those uh, AMRs that really help uh, our pickers by working alongside of them. Uh, so we've made a number of installs with those in our network as well. And uh, the other thing that's been really um, picking up as of late is uh, goods to person solutions. Uh, and that's both in mobile robotics and somewhat of a traditional robotics. So it'd be something like AutoStore. Uh, and then there are other similar technologies around that. Uh, that does some of the ASRS type of activity as well as, well as goods to person. And also, you know, the good old uh, Kiva-like systems, you know, there's a number of uh, vendors that are, are providing similar solution to that. So that's also been picking up quite a heat that we're also exploring a lot of opportunities with. Yeah, so Bill, as a, as a retailer um, with all of these technologies coming at you, how do you um, efficiently, you know, evaluate them and put them into operation? I mean, it would seem like it could be overwhelming almost. Uh, it, it can be. I think uh, like any solve, you got to know the problem that you're trying to solve. You got to understand your problem statement and then you start shopping for what are the opportunities uh, uh, in that problem statement. Um, we also use goods to person in our uh, in our in one of our facilities, our newest facility. We have an automated storage and retrieval system. Um, and fundamentally, you take the latency of human labor out of the walking and travel distance and the shuttle system that we use can move much faster than a human could do it. And I can pick a lot faster than a human uh, than a human uh, might otherwise be able to do. Um, so uh, it depends on the process that you see where your greatest opportunity is. And it also depends on um, what what your investment is going to look like. We, uh, we too looked at uh, folks like Six River and, and others that are um, the, the robotic um, that is going to follow uh, and or work in clusters to eliminate some of the walking for the human and the human can interact with multiple robots um, versus, uh, versus a single tote and they're pushing it along. So what's the problem statement you're trying to solve? Is it latency? Uh, is it accuracy? Understand your problem statement, and that will help you lead you to where some of your opportunity is. Right now, labor is a problem statement. What are some of those opportunities? They may not be 100% as fast as humans. So robotic arms are very popular, and for the right profile of product, they can do a lot of work in a dark room when nobody's watching in a very accurate format when I couldn't have otherwise had a human doing it. And you can kind of have an always on um, uh, mentality about that. Um, and so uh, there may be processes right now that um, choosing to do nothing because there's no human inner uh, opportunity uh, versus having a robot that can replace, even if it's uh, as fast or slightly slower, 
Um, those, those technologies are going to continue to evolve uh, and will continue to have opportunities to enhance the, um, the efficiency of the operation. So a question around some of the pace of change that's happening within the supply chain industry overall and within REI, Bill, and DHL, Justin, you know, what's your perspective on how to learn fast or fail fast, courage to test, these kinds of concepts that you hear? I mean, how do those practically play out? And, you know, when do you know it's time to move on versus implement something that you feel confident with? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in here. I think there's three kind of principles and then maybe Justin uh, comment and we can go from there. But I think the first thing is no one you're sacrificing good in the pursuit of perfection kind of leans into that speed piece, right? The second and accompanying comment that I would make there is that sometimes and maybe more often than we admit, the whiteboard math is good enough to get us moving and it's good enough to leverage the courage to do something versus being paralyzed in that pursuit of perfection. And then the last thing I'd say is as a leader, it's my job to know when to help the team differentiate the need for the detailed math versus the opportunity to move forward with the whiteboard math, if you will, and choose to iterate and find the best outcome and or find when it's time to stop. Justin, from a service provider standpoint, how do you work with customers to strike that right balance? When I think of learning fast, you know, it's really about not hesitating in a way. Of course, you need to take the time and do the right analysis to make your decision. But I've seen enough instances where even with all the work completed, it's hard to make that decision. Like Bill said, we're never going to get that perfection in terms of you know, the answers that we're looking for. So there's always a, an element of risk. And sometimes it's small, sometimes it's big. And I think to varying degrees, people have different appetite to, to take on those risks. But I think there's definitely more instances where people will tend to err on the side of caution. So if the business case is really a split decision or a really close one, I think some organizations have decided to stay the same instead of taking on that risk of the change. But it's becoming more evident that that type of approach may not be sustainable in today's market. Things are changing fast. And I will say, you know, we have customers who will always look at different alternative solution or technology that they want to explore, like every five years. And the answer comes up the same. Your ROI is going to be five years. But, you know, if you think about it, the reason why it's always that same answer is because our baseline would always change as well. So wage rate that we looked at five years ago is different from today's wage rate. So another way of looking at it is if you actually took that risk on or just accepted that ROI term five years ago, now you would have entered into that stage where your assets are paid off and you're going to reap in benefits of millions of dollars of savings that will bring you on the plus side of that ROI equation. So... Yeah, I think it's it's really about not hesitating and sometimes being just courageous to take on some of the risks that are calculated and that have been planned for. So, Bill, when you get into the situations with your team where you're in sort of the gray zone on a business case, are you finding that you're putting your thumb on the scale and pushing them uh, more today than you have in the past or has that not changed? I would say that I'm probably in a privileged position that my team will push back. Sometimes that affords me the opportunity to consider and weigh that in and decide when to put the thumb on the scale. 
the reality is, is that it's a change management equation. And if you don't bring people along in change, you don't affect change. So the moral of that is bringing people along. I think the other thing is just pausing and recognizing that how we have done business historically, cycles, rhythm of business, patterns within the business, history are no longer serving us in the last two years. And we're having to think about things a little bit differently. And if you lack courage to make decisions within the margins of those ambiguities, you're going to struggle and your company will suffer. So shifting gears a little bit into kind of the broader market around omnichannel, there are a lot of manufacturers and a lot of retailers in the market, and they're all trying to adapt their models to keep up with consumer demand, what competitors are doing. Justin, at DHL, are you seeing models that are becoming more alike that we're applying with different customers or is it still sort of a grab bag depending on individual companies? Yes, yeah, certainly seeing that across the board in terms of needing to change, um, I think which kind of fits into the theme we we're just talking about. Yeah, I think e-commerce usually in the past was always sort of, I guess, the younger sibling of retail, like you got your brick and mortar and it's additional channel to it. And then we saw the rise of retailers that only chose to do e-com. But now we got a mixed bag of retailers who've got multiple channels. And then now that that's sort of transitioning into other parts of the industry, like consumer who would normally just send large shipments to other retailers are now having to open up that channel as well. You know, auto technology sectors, they're all getting behind that uh, theme. And yeah, I, I would say these things are being more common across the board because consumer behavior has changed and everyone's trying to meet that in the right way. And when we talk about e-commerce, it's so easy to generalize in one concept of just going online and buying. But behind the scenes, there's different avenues of fulfilling that order as well. So it's not just a pick, pack and ship from a distribution center. Sometimes, you know, there's other ways of doing that, like dropship where the ordering and all that process is happening somewhere else. And another party will be taking care of the distribution part of it and many other different ways. So within e-commerce, I think, you know, there's complexity there also. So we're recognizing that and trying to find a solution for really across the board. How, how do we support the emergence of these type of orders? Now, when we talk about omni-channel, I think we've said it before as well. A lot of the times it's really difficult to optimize all solutions all together in a single building because the profile of the orders are so different from retail to wholesale to e-commerce, you know, you sometimes have to pick and choose where you want to win. So do you sub-optimize all of them so that everything kind of plays nicely together? Or do you choose to optimize you know, the biggest channel and then take the hit on some of the other channels? So I think that's the challenging part. A good thing is there's emerging technologies and solutions out there that is bridging that gap a little bit and making it more agile and flexible. But that's still the reality in my perspective that you, know, you would never optimize fully uh, what an omni-channel distribution would look like. Bill, where do you look for ideas or best practices in industry? Yeah, so I think the thing I would lead with is as you consider what others are doing, 
Your first responsibility is to know your why, know what you're solving for, and give attention to that. You know, for REI, the why is always going to revolve around customer and member. And from an omni-channel perspective, one of the whys for us is because customers and members expect us to be delivering in a timely manner and in a competitive lead time. We've done some work to understand that specifically and what it drives from a top line revenue perspective based on that behavior. And we've learned that it's worth the investment to make sure that you have inventory in proximity to the customer that can enable speed that lets you, first off, complete those sales, right? Whether uh, that's through SIF for coming out of a distribution center. So the speed matters. But what also matters is reliability. So if I get an order in two days one time and the next time it's six days, right, that doesn't build loyalty and doesn't build customer confidence. So the consistency and reliability is important. There are a number of different solutions and ways that people will address this. It's going to rely on the scale of their business. It's going to rely on what's the scope and scale of their network and how they choose to use inventory, whether they choose to have omni centers, whether they're doing retail and digital, or whether they're doing those in separate facilities. And their business model is going to drive that so that they can optimize the handling characteristic to best serve those customer outcomes, right? So it's a boomerang. It always comes back to What's the customer outcome? What's your why? What are you solving for? And the solutions and or the leveraging of multiple facets of what others are doing will inform the right outcome in service of your customer. Great. So last topic, I know another thing that REI is known for as a member of REI myself is the returns policy. And I think we could spend multiple podcasts talking about returns as a subject. So I want to limit the question to just within the last 18, 24 months when we were in the pandemic, what kind of trend did you see from a returns volume perspective and how are you seeing it play out today? Yeah. So, Will, I think many retailers feared the bullwhip of, hey, retail stores are closed. And we both enjoyed because of the opportunity to get the inventory back facing to a customer's speed returns to store. And we worried about the bullwhip of initially there was a slowdown in returns and or backlog as customers who would have otherwise gone to store started to pivot to mail-in returns. What we knew and had to adapt quickly around was how are we delivering consistency and reliability in the service of returns? Customers want their money back first and foremost, and they don't want it to be sitting without any communication. So communication became paramount in that conversation as well. And then customers are sensitive to the cost and most expect free returns as a component of the returns and just as a component of how e-commerce works today. So we had the buildup of returns and we sort of work through what I'll call a quasi accrual process that so we go, hey, it's coming, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Sure enough, as retail reopened, we saw a, a bubble. We worked down through that bubble. We expanded some of our mail-in operations to make sure that we could both address the bubble and then rely and give reliable returns processing time uh, as we came out of that. Now that we've accomplished that, we can continue back on that mission of, 
How do we make sure that we give the best experience to our customer and we look for features that can be further enhancing to our member experience? Great. Justin, is that a similar trend that we've seen for other DHL customers? Yeah, definitely. There are some retailers out there who extended their return policy as well You know, during some of the shutdowns so that the customers felt like they urgently needed to figure out how to return stuff. You know, They could wait a little longer and that would have been acceptable. So I guess that could have co- contributed to that bubble as well. When, when things open, people are kind of getting rushed in to make those returns. Yeah, not much to add. I think one thing I could maybe add a comment around is around what Bill said about the customers wanting their money back quickly. And there have been some solutions and ideas out there, which I think some companies are actually already doing, including Amazon. When you've done a lot of transaction with them and, and built some type of you know uh, trust in that engagement, now if you also return your next product, even before that product hits the warehouse, you actually already refunded that amount. So it's kind of like the retailers taking a bit of trust in that, yeah, that product will get to us. So once you you know package the good and drop it off at a post office or wherever the drop office, they scan to say now there's a tracking ID associated with that return, they will process the refund already so that you get that money back. And I think that has had some positive feedback uh, from the customers as well. Yeah, and hopefully spend the refund back with the original retailer, right? (laughs) Right. I I would say we like to think about taking that one step further relative to our sustainability mission. I know some retailers will just say, hey, keep it, we'll credit you. And for us, uh, the opportunity to make that gear available to another customer, even at a reduced price uh, in our re-commerce or used gear channel, is a great opportunity to introduce somebody to the outdoors with quality gear that helps them have an enjoyable experience and continue that experience. So we love it when we have the opportunity to be able to get that gear back into that channel as well versus, dare I say, leaving it to however the customer might want to dispose of it. Great. Great. Well, thank you both for joining today and for your perspective on these things. Very interesting times in the industry for sure. And hopefully coming into a bit more of a normal kind of operating environment as we move into 2022. We hope. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please share it with a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us online at dhl.com slash allbusinessnoboundaries and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at at DHL Supply Chain. We'll see you next time.